Hello and welcome back to Coding with Holger. Today is a nice day because with me is Martin Brown and we will talk about Android. Hi Martin, how are you doing? Hi, I'm doing great. How are you? Oh, not too bad. A bit warm, but hey, we can complain about any weather, so hey. <laughs> All good. So you look you look rather rather comfy in where you are. Um, so if you're listening in, um, we can see each other. Um, maybe you can see us as well. So I'm, I'm thinking about putting these sessions out on YouTube. We will see. Um, for now, definitely uh, on, on audio. But uh, beside this, so much on, before we get into the topic, which is Android today and Android development in specific, um, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, um, so I'm an Android developer, mostly. Uh, my current job title is an Android developer advocate at Stream. Uh, we work on uh, building chat SDKs for all sorts of different platforms. But I did used to work in the engineering team uh, at this company. And before this, I had left their uh, Android well. developer roles. I'm, I do a lot of community things uh, other than my day job. So um, I give talks, I write blog posts. I'm a Google developer expert for uh, Kotlin and Android. Um, I used to hang out a lot on Stack Overflow when I had a lot of free time for it. <laughs> that, that what was is quite this free fun. time you're talking about? <laughs> it, it was during university, to be fair. <laughs> I see, I see, I see. Um, yeah, I think, that's, <laughs> I think that's, the, that's the gist of it. It's a lot of things. I'll pick on a few beside this uh, main topic, Android, just out of curiosity. You mentioned Android developer advocate so how do you see the role of a developer advocate for android the role for developer advocates in in our company i think it differs a lot uh, between different places uh, for us it means uh, spreading awareness uh, in the developer community uh, like about our product uh, helping our users uh, making sure that they get the best possible experience that our product is easy to use like from a from a developer's uh, point of view this, this sort of thing is, is really important if you're if you're building an SDK that is ultimately going to be uh, used by developers. And uh, then you touched on something I saw from time to time on LinkedIn, just scrolling by, and I never really looked into it. But I heard it before. So you, you mentioned Google Developer Expert. Uh, what is a GDE? What, how do you how do you become one, and um, why do you want to be one? <laughs> Well, uh, like ideally, you don't want to be one. Uh, I mean, like this shouldn't sh this shouldn't specifically be a goal for you. Uh, it's uh, it's it's more of a recognition of things that you're already doing than anything else. It's it's important that it's not uh, not awarded for like technical prowess. It's a recognition of the work that you're doing in the given community uh, with some Google technology. So uh, for me, it's the Android and Kotlin categories. So I, I got into this uh, program because, uh, as I mentioned, I've been doing talks, I've been producing blog posts and uh, doing that sort of thing in the community. And yeah, there are there are a lot of different uh, people in there who are working on in, in different ways. So, uh, for example, there are people who uh, build courses. Uh, there are people who produce YouTube videos uh, teaching about these technologies. Basically, if if you're a prominent member of the community and you're doing a lot for for the given uh, technologies community, then uh, you can be brought into this program. And well, it it has like networking effects. So uh, you get the ability of perhaps more easily reaching other GDs. You get um, like some help from Google uh, with your stuff, uh, like maybe some some early announcements, some sneak peeks, some internal discussions where they ask you for feedback, things like that. How was the process for you? When when did they approach you to be, or when did they promote you to a GD? Uh, I think it was uh, it was uh, me who. Uh, like applied when when I felt like it was uh, appropriate. Like you, you can you can get a referral from existing GDs. Uh, I've also had some uh, some other GDs help me out uh, along the way. Like uh, tell me about the program and uh, how it works and uh, whether they think uh, I would be a good fit at that point. And yeah, the, the process is fairly straightforward. Uh, you can you can find some uh, written things about it. It's handing in a very long form of your community contributions to Google with like a lot of details of how many people have attended and read your stuff and so on, like what your impact has been. And 
other than that, uh, it's a pair of interviews for uh, a bit for technical things to make sure that like someone who's called an expert is actually up to snuff on, <laughs> on the technical <laughs> technical part. Fair enough. Yeah. And also a community interview, uh, which is which is about the indie software part of things, the, the contributions you've been doing, why you're doing it. Cool. Nice. Thank you. Learned something. Perfect. <laughs> so now let's let's uh, dig into into the main topic, which is Android development. Can you give us a little bit of an of a background how Android came to be and how this whole development developed itself? Uh, over the, over the years, because I remember when I looked into Android, which was back in the times where where it was pre two point zero, it was much different to what it is today, and I, I, I didn't really keep track. So, if you could give a brief brief history on on Android, this would be great. Uh, yeah, uh, this is an interesting topic for me uh, because for the early history of Android, I've also just been taught the history of it uh, because I wasn't there yet. I I started on Android in my third year of university, which was in 2016. Um, so I only see back like properly like about five years uh, into Android uh, history. But to go back all the way back in tw- 2008-ish, uh, like sometime very close after the iPhone announcements, Android was made public by Google and... Its main uh, attractive feature uh, was that uh, you could code in Java to create mobile applications. And Google was uh, essentially uh, back then betting that there would be a lot of existing Java developers who could easily uh, get on board and create apps for the platform so they could have like a rich app store experience and, and a lot of things for users to play around with if they choose to buy an Android device. Well, Android was like obviously a lot different back then. This is like more than a decade ago now. Yeah, we had we had a lot of physical inputs, um, some early early touch screens. Of course, a lot smaller devices. Uh, it's been it's been quite an evolution. We've had multiple uh, like major design iterations uh, on the OS um, since then, and yeah, a lot of changes for developers as well. Uh, originally. I don't even know if it was the first way to develop for Android, but for a long while it was uh, Eclipse uh, that you would use uh, as the development environment, uh, which every like truly seasoned Android developer has has stories about. I also had the luck to use Eclipse, uh, not not for Android but for other things. And I think if when I was starting out on Android, if it was still Eclipse, I might not have been hooked. <laughs> it was different back then to well to put this politically correct as good as I can. So I remember times where I was using Ball and JBuilder uh, in a really, really restricted environment. And back then, Eclipse was a epiphany for me. So it was definitely something which was great. And um, it, it, it kept on innovating till they started doing interesting things and totally, as in my eyes, messing up the environment uh, when they tried to get from a IDE to a application development platform. And uh, it made it really painful. And um, But yeah, sorry. Say back then, uh, definitely it was better to have, uh, to build up on Eclipse because it had a really, really widespread user base. And it was extensible, extensible because it, it supported plugins and everything. And um, it, it worked okay-ish. Uh, it was nothing compared to what we have today. So, yeah, but fair point. I think nowadays, if it would still be Eclipse, I think this would be something um, up for grabs. But yeah, no, go on. Sorry. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean the the way that you could uh, like extend Eclipse and you could add plugins to it uh, was was definitely one of the requirements for Android development in the early days. Uh, because while it's it's Java development, it's it doesn't work exactly like other Java applications. So it's it's not exactly the same virtual machine. It has some uh, very custom things in the in the build process that you have to that you have to be able to do uh, to build Android apps. So yeah, that's also that's also a bit of a challenge uh, for for Android developers. Like it's it's not true that any Java developer can just immediately write Java because. Uh, because there are some peculiarities to the environment, uh, you also have to learn the framework, which is which is quite different from any other Java environment. But at least the language is common, and that was definitely a a major thing to get a lot of people on board early. 
Is it still still Dalvik, which is used as the JVM of choice on Android, or is there a new thing now? It uh, used to be, uh, I believe, in Android 5. Uh, we got the new runtime as an opt-in thing you could use. Maybe it was nested in like developer options, and you can enable it optionally. Uh, and then in, in the following versions, uh, we got the ART runtime, which is just the Android runtime, uh, ART. And for many years now, we've had that. Um, and it's, well, well, Dalvik was an initial way of getting JVM code, uh, like Java bytecode to run on these mobile devices. Uh, ART was a major evolution of that. Uh, it redesigned a lot of things to consider the mobile environment. Um, it had a lot of improvements in garbage collection and uh, performance uh, to make sure that it runs well on a restricted device. Yeah, it's it's still amazing if you think about it. Like these these little little phones, quote unquote, have more uh, power than when the computer we had to fly to the moon, uh, and still it's a restricted device in uh, multiple ways of looking at it. So it's it's uh, it's very interesting to see. Nowadays, the IDE we use or the IDE of choice is IntelliJ based. If I'm not completely mistaken, it's Android Studios now especially a special release of IntelliJ, correct? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's built on the IntelliJ IDEA platform uh, and it has a lot of extra things in it uh, for Android development. Like um, it's it's like an IntelliJ release with a lot of plugins in it. You can you can also technically use uh, IntelliJ IDEA itself if you want to for Android development. Uh, there is a plugin that you can install in there, uh, but there are certain tools for um like um, inspecting files on the device and um, uh, like a visual layout designer and uh, things like that that I believe are exclusive to Android Studio. Uh, the good thing, of course, about Android Studio is that it's completely free. So it's an IntelliJ-based IDE, uh, but Google is uh, letting every, everyone use it for free. So that's, uh, that's a very powerful pro for uh, doing Android development. I also haven't mentioned, but uh, of course, the platform itself is also mostly open and free. Uh, there are services that we use that are uh, like proprietary Google things, uh, but the OS in large is an open source project uh, through AOSP, the Android open source project. So, you know, this is this is one of the major pros for for the Android platform that it's it's open that anyone can read the source code, uh, you can fork it, you can uh, create your own versions, um, and it's also great during development um, because we have the advantage that. Whenever you're calling into something provided by the platform, like the default classes that are that are in there, um, you can always jump into the source code and just read the implementation. Um, that nearly always works uh, when you're calling Android code, and and that's really really useful to get a deeper understanding of how things work. I think the everything proprietary is either a service or brought in by the device manufacturer, isn't it? The 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 core itself is, yeah. Yeah, the, the non-open parts uh, uh, when it comes to building applications are uh, things like um, Google Play services. Um, so that's that's a way of uh, Google providing some uh, some of their own APIs on top of the OS, uh, which is which is open. Um, so they ship things like uh, push notifications or or um, their map services, for example or their um, location services through that. And um, so at the very beginning, it was Java only. Nowadays, it's uh, the, the the new uh, best thing we have in our lives, Kotlin, you can use to, to develop, right? Is it is it one-to-one? -one? Is it really that we can have the same features in Java and Kotlin? Or is it that um, with Kotlin being the new official language, that new features uh, land in Kotlin first, and then we. If you still use Java, you have to to call into the Kotlin code. Yeah, the the story of the the language migration is an exciting one. I one of the main things uh, that I got into as I uh, got into Android development was the Kotlin language itself. I, I do a lot of things around Kotlin. Even if I wasn't doing Android, I think I would I would find something where I can write Kotlin. And uh, Kotlin has been used for a while now. Uh, like even, even when I started in 2016, there were people who were using beta versions of Kotlin 
and somehow making it work with with Android, even even without any official support. Uh, there were some companies who were using it in production because because the language had so many advantages over Java back then. The 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 biggest problem of Java on the Android platform is that. Uh, to use new, new Java versions, you have to be on newer Android versions. So, for example, to use Java 7 or Java 8 features, you had to be on, uh, I'm not going to get this right, but uh, on like Android 8 or 9. And on older devices, you you, you just didn't have uh, those Java features available. So even though Java was evolving in an okay pace, Android was stuck uh, on whatever the oldest device you were supporting could do for Java, which is usually Java 1.6. And well, writing Java 1.6 is is not a fun experience. Uh, There are a lot of lot of convenience uh, features that are that are missing uh, back then. So that's why a lot of people started using Kotlin even before it was uh, supported in an official capacity. And it was first announced in 2017 uh, that uh, you can use it officially. It was actually the third supported language on the platform uh, because I'm not sure from how long ago, but for a long while you could also write uh, just native code, so like C++. That that was needed for for some high performance uh, features that you would want, so like um, image or video processing or audio. In a lot of cases, you would have to uh, pull in native libraries and then. Uh, call into those from from Java, um, so that that was always a always a supported feature, uh, also for uh, like cryptography and those kinds of applications. But you couldn't you couldn't write whole applications in it, wasn't it? It was always kind of a it's like a library you 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 load and then you have the actual application written in Java. Yeah, you, you would need Java at least as an entry point and probably for the UI as well. But then you could you could have some of your implementation in, in native code if if that was beneficial to you. So Kotlin was added as a third language, uh, although native is not the usual use case. <laughs> so technically a third language in 2017. Uh, and from there on, uh, Google was using it in more, more and more. Uh, you would see more and more Kotlin in their slides. Uh, you would see uh, Kotlin showing up slowly in their official documentation and so on. And by 2019, we got to the point where they announced that uh, the Android platform would be Kotlin first from now. So that meant that they were primarily uh, doing everything in Kotlin. Um, so Java was the Java from there as like a secondary language to use on the platform. But it's also very important that they still haven't abandoned Java. Um, it's still being actively supported. Anything that Google releases will still be usable from Java. It might be written in Kotlin now. Um, but it, they are still paying a lot of attention to make sure that if you're building a Java application, you can still do everything on the platform that you could do in Kotlin, just maybe less conveniently or with different syntax. They are also working actively on supporting those newer Java versions. Uh, they have this uh, thing called uh, desugaring um, as a feature of the build process, uh, which means that you can use newer Java features even if you're also targeting devices that don't have that Java version yet. So, uh, for example, you can use uh, some Java 8 APIs uh, now. And, and even if you're going to run that code on a device uh, that doesn't, doesn't have Java 8 on it, uh, it has some older version, the code gets transformed when you build a package so that it's like desugared into uh, simpler constructs that can also work on older versions of, versions of Java. So Kotlin is the main thing now, but they want to make sure that Java is, is still supported and the Java support is also actively evolving. You mentioned things like uh, the build process and then you write. How, how, does, how does a workflow look like when you create a new Android app? So how, how, how do you start and then how does it finally end up on the device? Um, most of it is... is uh hidden from you like by default if if you're just getting started and you don't need to tinker with it too much uh then since we have android studio which is a very very rich ide um you can do everything basically by by the ui so like file new project wizard uh click through the steps uh next 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 finish then you have a run button to uh deploy to your uh device that's connected and so on so most of it is is hidden from you. Uh, most of the of the details of the build process, uh, but as you as you progress uh, towards doing more advanced things uh, in your application, you will probably have to learn about it. 
yeah, for for getting it in your device during development, uh, you can you can use your own device, of course. Um, so you can run it on your on your own phone if you have an Android phone. That that was one of the one of the things that really like captured my attention when I was I was learning Android development at at university. That I finally had something that was like um, tangible, and uh, that I was building. I, I could actually run it on my own phone and and use it for something useful compared to. Um, like previous examples where, um, I don't know what we were writing, um, uh, say C or C plus plus code and creating linked lists and, uh, um, uh, creating, um, I don't know, uh, small command line programs that could decide if a number is a prime or like whatever it might be. I also enjoyed those. And there's, there's a lot of fun to be had with like data structures and algorithms, but having a working application that's like in your hands and you can, you can interact with it. That was, that was really cool back then for me. <laughs> Right. So yeah, you can use your own device. Uh, if you have an Android device, we also have emulators um, so that you can use a virtual device uh, that you can run on your machine and build your Android apps and run them on that. That's also a great way to try different devices. Android has as <laughs> well, depending on, on what your view is, you can call it uh, diversity or fragmentation. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. we have a lot of different devices. Uh, so screen sizes, ratios of the screens, uh, resolutions, uh, how much hardware is in there, like memory and, and uh, storage and CPU power. Uh, and you can mostly emulate these um, so you can see what your app looks like and what it behaves like on different devices. So that's, that's also really useful. And then for getting your apps to the uh, to end users to to consumers, that's a whole other story on its own. Uh, being able to publish an application, uh, the common place is still Google's Play Store, but there are also some alternatives. For example, um, Samsung and Amazon have their own stores. Uh, Huawei also has its own store. But yeah, this is uh, <laughs> these uh, stores and and uh, publishing applications is is the topic of a lot of lawsuits lately. <laughs> As, yeah, as you might yeah, have yeah. seen in the news, yeah, it's 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 an ongoing fun. There is a open uh, shop system as well. well shop system is an uh, application providing system, yeah, however you want something with F. I forgot it, which is essentially used by the people who use Android phones with non-stock Android. So meaning, so stock Android is what you get from your vendor. Meaning, so if you, if you buy a Samsung or a OnePlus, uh, Samsung or OnePlus will provide you with a, a Android version. They might even have their own names for it. They have their own UI on it. And then there are three versions of this, which is uh, usually maintained by, by volunteers, by open source folks. And you can install this, more, well, depending on the device, easier or not. And this is then usually referred to as aftermarket ROMs or non-stock ROMs. And um, there is one for, because it's it's not, if you want to use Google's Play Store, if I'm not completely mistaken, you have to obey by their, uh, there are some rules in there that essentially, yeah, then you have to buy into all the services Google provides, including the tracking and all this, and there are, uh, users who don't like this. So there's this free version of it. And then you can post your, your app in there as well. And I can imagine there are even more of these kinds of, of, of uh, platforms or app stores. So it's, yeah, it's it's interesting. So from you with this desugaring and, and, and similar approaches, uh, because this was one thing I still have in mind when I still remember from the times when I looked into Android, which is long ago. Thanks, by the way, for, for putting this into numbers. I feel a bit older now. Uh, <laughs> You're very welcome. <laughs> uh, thanks. Uh, now, uh, but back then, it was already a pain because uh, we were just approaching 2.0 and and um, it, it wasn't catching on that f that quickly. And if I look into the environments now and if I listen to people, it's still sometimes a bit, depending on the vendor you have, you might not even get the next mega version. From from your perspective, how, how much influence do you have of this? Let's call it fragmentation in this case because it is, it is kind of, of an interesting challenge. How much impact does this have on, on, on your code nowadays? How, so how much different versions do you have to maintain or how low do you have to go? 
Yeah, uh, back back when I started, so about five years ago, I've I've seen a lot of the same code, like just literal if statements in the code, like if the version is older than this, then do this. Otherwise, we can finally do this because it's available. Uh, there were a lot of checks like that in the code. Uh, but in, in recent years, at least in the code that I was working on, there was very little of this. Um, so fragmentation is, is very serious on the platform. It's, it's not like, um, like iOS where uh, you can see stats where I don't know, like a couple of months after the release, 90% of people are on the newest version immediately. Um, so that, that never happens on Android. Um, but the good news is that it doesn't matter so much anymore, um, because a lot of the things that you would use from the new versions are extracted to support libraries, which give you backwards compatibility even for versions that didn't have that uh, baked into the OS. So uh, that fragmentation is mostly abstracted away from you and you don't have to deal with it. But yeah, you'll you'll still stumble into into cases where where you have to deal with deal with deal with that occasionally for for some special features. But generally speaking, if if you're writing code that uses all of the uh, support libraries that Google provides, and you're targeting the latest version, you won't have to do a lot of tinkering for for like manual manually writing code that that handles old versions anymore. I also remember it was a bit painful to test things, especially end to end tests for for apps are. Interesting, because you do have this this huge diversity on on, on devices. How is your take on this? How, what what do you see nowadays on how these tests are done? Ah, well, uh, yeah, make, making sure <laughs> <Got> that to. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, this answer has has to has to has to begin with some kind of a sigh. Yeah, uh, <laughs> so making sure that your app works uh, correctly on on all of these devices is um, is quite challenging still. Like in, in, in general, for, for usual use cases, you should be fine if you're writing boring code and you're not using a lot of like interesting features of the device. Like, uh, if you're not dealing a lot with, uh, hardware features like Bluetooth or camera, then, then your life is mostly easy. If, if you're, you're displaying UI, you're making network calls using databases. That's, that's usually uh, very well handled by everything. You, you get into some trouble when you're using things like the camera. Uh, again, uh, Google has some pretty good libraries for that now, but. You know, uh, they're, they're also just trying really hard to fix all the fragmentation and handle all of the different cases. And that code isn't perfect yet either. So you can run into some issues there. And as you mentioned, manufacturers uh, really love making their own versions of Android and uh, customizing the base open source version. I've been tackling an issue on like Samsung devices on Android 10 uh, for the last month or so. Uh, I think we finally fixed it, but it, it was it was kind of a nightmare. So you, you still run into situations where Samsung is doing something weird in their OS and the errors that you're seeing make no sense, but they've customized some customized uh, something in the runtime and it's behaving differently from all other devices, including their own older and newer devices. They just messed something <laughs> up on one specific version. So yeah, like that—that's that's still part of Android development, uh, having to hunt down things like that. How much how much support do you get from from the vendors in these cases? What, what is your experience? I, I I know of stories, especially with Samsung, but I'm I'm, I'm really curious on, on on how you perceive it. Oh, I I never I never got so far with issues that uh, that I would be like talking to Samsung or something like that. If if that was possible, uh, I would actually love to talk to some of their Android engineers in cases like this. But I, I don't know if an avenue where I could reach them. Ping, ping me, ping me early next week. I get you a contact. Um, okay, try. Let's put it this way: uh, a good friend of mine. Um, he is uh, working on a much lower level, so he's essentially working on, on on the mobile phone itself to to provide multiple environments on one phone for security reasons, and uh, he sometimes vents about um, things and there's then something where so between the lines the statement was like it's a consumer device it's fine if the consumer has to restart it once a day and things like that and it's like mm, it's not really how it should be really let's we can fix this you just you have to do it because it's not my code but it's doable and um but so if I, I can try to get you a contact if you if you want to um can't promise but yes anyways <laughs> let's let's Actually, put that on the on, on the list of things that developers shouldn't have to do <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, on, on the other hand, it's like 
it is something where Samsung, in my eyes, should have interest in because they make money off people buying their phones because they want to use things on their on then their phones, and making this easier to use so people are more engaged in buying these phones should be in their own interest. But uh, it's just well, it's it's. It's me speaking as a techie <laughs> and uh, essentially saying, look, it's like, oh, I use your, your platform. You make money off this. It's just fair to say we should work together so we make more money off this. Um, but yeah, anyways, you mentioned databases. So how, how, <laughs> okay. How does, how, yeah, 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 yeah. Statement. Um, how, 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 does, how does data storage work on, on, on Android. So how can I, I imagine uh, there is no Postgres. I uh, can install as an app and then just use this for my relational needs. There's uh, some other things I have to do to, to store data. So what, what, what is the, how do you handle state on, 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 uh, in an app? Uh, yeah, uh, there are a bunch of different APIs that you can use. If, if you want to go uh, like very bare bones, you can just create files. Uh, that's that's always a thing. Although it's getting getting more and more restricted with newer versions, uh, it used to be that Android apps could just inspect and write all storage on the device. Um, so uh, any app could access uh, common folders like like downloads and pictures and and whatever it is, uh, which meant that we could build very powerful applications. But it also meant that a misbehaving application or a malicious application could mess up a lot of things on your phone. Um, so. With every Android version in, in recent years, there have been more and more restrictions on what you can access and how you can gain permissions to it. And yeah, things like a file manager application have become increasingly difficult to create. <laughs> Other than just managing files directly, uh, we do have a built-in database, which has been in Android for for ages, maybe like almost since the very beginning, uh, which is SQLite. Uh, and if you're willing to write every everything by hand. Uh, you can write uh, SQL code and uh, execute it in, in very low-level APIs. Uh, that used to be the standard, for example, when I got started. So about five years ago, that was a fairly standard thing to do. Um, you would put everything into constants so that you're like not uh, writing writing your uh, SQL code uh, manually all the time. And you would, you would try to uh, give it some structure on, on how you use it, but you, you did like essentially still just write raw SQL and, and run that. We've also had some uh, wrappers around that. Um, so for example, we have a first party solution from Google, which is called Room, which is a library that lets you just declare interfaces and model objects. So it's, it's kind of an ORM. It's kind of an object relation mapper uh, where you write code and that automatically gets mapped into SQL. Yeah, that, that avoids you having to write that code, uh, write these SQL queries by hand. Um, it, it generates it f uh, for you uh, if you create uh, like functions like, uh, I don't know, like get all objects and then you put some put some data around that, um, some annotations on it for, for more info. And then it can pick it up and, and generate the code that will actually access the uh, underlying database. So these days you don't usually deal with this manually there are also third party libraries like uh, sql delight where you are still writing sql code but you're writing it in a much more convenient way uh, than uh, what you would get uh, with the platform apis uh, that's also multi platform so if you want to share your implementation um, between different different uh, platforms if you want to run the same thing on ios and android for example um, then that's a way to go um, what else? Oh, and we have a lot of databases that don't use the built-in SQLite engine. So we've had Realm, uh, which is a, an object-based uh, database. We, I think, uh, yeah, there, there, there's a bunch of those. I, I feel like I would, I would, I would uh, not be able to list everything, but uh, we have some non-relational databases as well that just use some kind of file uh, storage to actually do their work. You also touched on something really interesting, which was uh, security and permissions. And um, how, for someone who never touched Android, or for someone who's interested in how this works, to get these screens where if this app will use, or is this app allowed to use XYZ, uh, XYZ, 
Um, so how does how is this system working on on Android? Ah, yeah, that's uh, that that's a really fun topic for Android developers. It 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 used to be that that you could just list all of the permissions that you were going to use uh, in like inside your project. You could you could uh, set up a list of things that you wanted access to, like uh, you wanted camera, you wanted location, you wanted file storage, you wanted internet permissions, and so on. And when the user installed your application, uh, they would just get this huge list of things that you wanted access to. And by installing your application, they would agree to give you access to all of those, your contacts, for example, uh, your uh, text messages. Um, they, they, could, they could ask for a lot of things. And you would either accept everything and install the application, or you would just cancel the installation. These days, it's, it's a lot more granular. Um, so you still uh, declare everything that you might want to access at any point in your app. But then during uh, runtime, as users are using your application, you uh, have to ask for uh, the more uh, tricky things uh, explicitly. So uh, for example, uh, you get uh, internet permission kind of for free. Uh, so you don't have to display a dialogue for that. Uh, if you declare it, uh, then uh, you can get access to that from the system. But uh, especially for hardware features, accessing the microphone, camera, uh, location, uh, so anything that's uh, privacy sensitive, you're, you're going to have to prompt the user at runtime to make sure that they are that they are aware that uh, you're going to be using those. This is also something that's improving uh, in every Android version recently. So um, you, you get uh, more and more precise prompts uh, for what the application is asking for. For example, for a very long time, uh, it used to be that to use Bluetooth, you had to ask for location access uh, because, like technically speaking, if if you get access to Bluetooth on a device, you can kind of figure out where the user is uh, in relation to other Bluetooth devices and um, like like where they are moving. Uh, so that that was part of location permissions, and you you were kind of stuck explaining to users that I'm going to ask for location permissions now, but I swear that I'm only using that for Bluetooth and I'm not like tracking your GPS location. So yeah, there for was example, that's, that's going to be fixed. Uh, yeah, there, because there, there we'll was another interesting one thing with, for it. with, ah, sorry, go uh, with, with, uh, I think something with, was it text messages or contacts, which you had to ask for to store something. I can't recall what it was. It was also really confusing where it was like, uh, you gave permission for, I think it was text messages, but it was more for writing something somewhere. I can't recall. Yeah. Uh, always interesting, interesting discussions. And uh, if, if you look into it, my, it's the biggest lie on earth nowadays is yes, I read the, uh, the terms and, and conditions. And uh, no one really did, and they just click yes. But yeah, yeah. I, I think these days we are we are getting to a pretty good state on Android. Like if if you want to avoid giving these permissions and and most of the tracking, I, I think Android is is a, is a pretty great platform to be on. Like you 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 get you get great control over over what you allow applications now. So how how do we handle this on on the cold side? Uh, because I imagine that if you have something which needs for example, location data, and the user decides on, I don't want to give you location data. Um, so how, how do you handle this? Yeah, uh, you, you have to design for this in the application somehow. Uh, if, if you follow all, all the guidelines, uh, then you should always ask the user for the permission at the latest point possible. So for example, if you need camera permission to take a picture in, in some uh, feature of your application, uh, you should only ask for that permission right before you uh, open the camera. Um, so you shouldn't do something like the app launches and you like give the user five prompts to like please accept all of these things in a row. So you you should be precise about these. And then, well, you're supposed to handle the like error case uh, nicely. So if if the user decides that they uh, won't provide the permission, then you you have to like figure out uh, what what uh, what's a sensible step to take with your product. So uh, maybe you can proceed to uh, opening a feature, but it will have uh, limited functionality. Um, so like um, for example, if you're displaying a map of um, uh, of whatever of attractions or something like that, uh, then you can ask for location permission so that you can uh, place the map to the current place and show the user where they are. Uh, but if they uh, don't give you the permission, then you can continue without it and just like show show the map without the the location on it, uh, and they can figure it out from there. And of course, in some cases, it just doesn't make sense to continue. So, like if if you're a 
I don't know, a video calling app and they uh, don't give you permissions, then you can just tell them like, okay, so <laughs> we, we, we need permissions to do this. Uh, if, if you don't provide them, then uh, you can't proceed like that. That's going to be the case somehow, uh, sometimes. Does this mean, um, because I said this a long time ago, so back then, um, as you, as you brilliantly explained, is, is it a huge list of things uh, you list on what you want to use? Uh, you, you keep on mentioning that um, I, as a developer, has have to, to explicitly display or, or ask for the permission. Is this something I do really encode saying, ask for the permission now? Or is this something which gets triggered? Yeah, it's 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 quite manual. So it's it's not that you uh, like try starting the microphone to record audio and then it 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 happens automatically. Uh, it's it's up to you to always remember that you might not have permission to do that yet, and include a piece in your code where you check if you have the permission and if you don't have it, uh, then to ask uh, for the permission. It, it also has a bunch of different cases. It's it's a bit complex on Android, so the the API from the system can respond with. The user hasn't given you the permission and you should now explain why you need it. And then you should handle that case as well. Uh, so you, you kind of get a chance to uh, explain why you're asking a permission if the user has denied it, but hasn't permanently denied it yet um, so that they might try again. Okay, interesting. Yeah, and, um, and if you if you skip doing this, if you forget to check for permissions, you just get exceptions and crashes. So it's, it's not very graceful. <laughs> doesn't sound like it. <laughs> You also mentioned a bit earlier that it, even back in the days when it was Java, it wasn't really Java, or not not just straight away switching over to something else, which has just happened to be written in Java. Um, so, what what is the main main difference? So, what I remember is uh, what I really still struggle with a bit to get this whole cycle into my head is this whole intent driven design more, more or less which was uh, back then the thing to do on android so how how is an android application structured and how does it differ compared to a say normal well, normal uh, for me normal web, uh, web application uh, yeah so uh, for a, a regular java application you're used to having a class where you have a main function and then like it, it enters that and uh, whatever code is in there is is what's going to be executed uh, at least for a command line application uh, for for Android, there are a bunch of classes that are provided by the framework that you have to uh, use when you're building your apps. So, for example, at least classically speaking, uh, each screen that you have is an activity. So you have to uh, create your own activity classes. Uh, and those have all sorts of lifecycle methods that are going to be called when the screen is being opened, when it's being closed. And instead of just having a main function that you go through, uh, you're writing these these uh, different uh, kinds of handlers uh, for for the lifecycle events that are that are happening, so that you can, uh, for example, when the screen is opened, uh, you can set up the user interface. You can uh, initialize it with data, uh, load some data for the user to see. Then you do. Uh, it, it's a very reactive environment. You get a lot of, lot of callbacks. You get a lot of events that you can handle. So, like you have this initial setup of of the application opening. Uh, then as the user is clicking things, you also write code that will handle that and change something in the application uh, based on what the user has done. So it it, it requires a, a different mindset than writing command line or server-side applications. Okay. Uh, also, an, an interesting thing you, you touched on it a bit slightly uh, is cross-platform development. And I mean, we, we, are, we are talking Kotlin, which gives us some freedom when it comes to to cross platform so what in 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 your experience so what what is something worth doing cross platform and what would be more suited for create an app for uh, at least android and ios and this depends on a lot on the on the business case that you that you want to solve for so there are a lot of different cross platform technologies that do different things so there's um, technologies like uh, react native or flutter uh, which mostly promise to ship the entire application with a common code base. So all of the UI is the same code on, on both platforms and also everything underneath. So the database, the network handling, uh, everything is, is the same code and it runs on um, both iOS and Android or even uh, like even the web and, and so on. Uh, Kotlin, for example, is, is doing a different approach uh, with Kotlin's mobile multi-platform. The focus is on providing the lower level 
parts of the application. Um, so the data handling uh, and the business logic uh, parts of the application in, in common code and writing that once. And then building UI with the platform's own uh, language and and own uh, UI toolkits. And that's that's I think that's the most prominent uh, use of Kotlin multi multi platform at the moment. Um, Kotlin can compile to a lot of things. Um, so its original uh, target was Java. It was uh, compiling to uh, Java bytecode, um, but then it also got support to compile to uh, JavaScript. Uh, so you can run that in the browser or on the server side. Uh, with something like Node. Uh, then it got support for native compilation, uh, which is what's being used uh, when you're compiling it for iOS. So yeah, Kotlin gives you a lot more than, than JVM these days. Uh, of course, if you're writing code that's going to be run on different device, uh, different platforms, uh, you can't use JVM-specific things anymore in that Kotlin code. So you, you don't have access to... Uh, like. Um, Java files, for example. Or, or even, even more basic things like UUIDs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was the first exactly. time I actually... Str- uh, yeah. So I was looking into uh, multi-platform projects. And the first thing was, uh, yeah, I, I, I want to have the either the, the website, so the, the front end or the back end create UUIDs and then just send them back or forth. And it's like, mm, okay, it's not that easy. Interesting. I never thought about this. It's always once you touch it, it's like, yeah, it makes sense. It's not there yet, but I never thought about this. Yeah, for, um, for most of the common problems, it's it's going to be up to libraries to support us. Uh, so some of this is, is being provided by uh, JetBrains as a first party thing. Um, they're the uh, company behind IntelliJ and also Kotlin. Um, so they're, they're developing... Um, things such as Gator, uh, which is a multi Kotlin multi-platform networking library. And depending on which platform you compile for, uh, for example, Android or iOS, it's going to use some native implementation under the hood to actually run your network calls, but you get to just call into the uh, Kotlin interface and you don't have to worry about what the implementation looks like. Um, SQL Delight does the same for databases. There are also, there are a lot of uh, multi-platform libraries now. Uh, for Kotlin, and that's the that's the main thing that has to evolve uh, for it to be feasible to develop apps like that. Uh, we need these wrappers that give you a common interface uh, for the platform-specific API, so that you don't have to uh, write that code twice. Definitely, very interesting to see what's happening there, and I like the approach Kotlin takes uh, because it does cross-compile actually into. Uh, something which is more or less natively running on the environment, depending on where you compile to. And um, it's uh, much more feasible than, in my eyes, than um, things like uh, Flutter or React Native, where you have to struggle first with JavaScript and then uh, you have the abstractions in between. And this then has to somehow run on a uh, platform, which is which needs to be then platform specific so it needs to be something for android something for ios and then web is, is javascript anyways and then yeah um last 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 thing uh i will ask you about android i promise it's um, how how is ui developed nowadays in, in in android i remember back in the days it was uh, a lot of xml and then there was this generated r class uh with with all the the references and 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 uh, strings in it, and um, it, it felt a bit clunky. So how how's how's the current state? Please tell me it's better. <laughs> uh, it's it's better, kind of. Uh, <laughs> so we, we we still have all of that clunky UI toolkit that you're talking about. Uh, we've we've had that since the very first version of of Android. So uh, whatever shipped on those devices that still had physical keyboards and a lot of physical buttons and completely different looking UIs than what we have today, uh, we still have that UI toolkit. It's evolved over the uh, past decade. Uh, A lot of uh, new features landed in it, but it's still the same core idea. Uh, We have have XML files uh, for layouts and we have to somehow like uh, look up those views from our Kotlin code, and then we can manipulate them. And we have to do a lot of state handling on it and making sure that uh, they're in the state where we expect them to be. So it's it's not a not a very graceful process. Uh, we still have all of that old UI toolkit, 
And the good news is that we also have a new one, uh, which is uh, Jetpack Compose. Uh, this is a declarative UI toolkit, uh, which is kind of the trendy thing to do these days. Um, so, um, for example, Flutter or Swift UI uh, also use this same style of uh, describing UI. And um, yeah, Compose is uh, built on Kotlin. Uh, so it's going to be exclusive to Kotlin. Uh, it uses um, plugins of, uh, it, it is a plugin for the uh, Kotlin compiler. And it uses uh, Kotlin's language features to get the syntax uh, that you see when you're using Compose. So it's a it's a very deeply Kotlin thing. Uh, both Google and uh, JetBrains are working on it. It's a collaboration between the two companies, and it should be released very soon. Now uh, people are guessing that on the 28th we're getting the 1.0 version of it. After a couple of years of like development previews and alphas and betas, uh, we're currently at RC2. Uh, in terms of releases. So if everything goes well in two weeks, it should be stable. And from there, we'll see uh, how quickly developers adopt it. I've been I've been ignoring Compose for a long while as it was in development. Uh, I was kind of keeping an eye on it, but I wasn't using it. Its its API has evolved a lot, which is actually a good thing because like they, they tried a bunch of things. They saw what worked and what didn't. And they uh, weren't af- afraid to uh, change very important APIs. Uh, during this uh, phase, and they also got a lot of feedback from developers on it. So it w- it was it was a really open uh, process the way that it was developed. And um, yeah, I've I've been using it now for a couple months, and and it's really really nice uh, to use. There there are some things that are not quite there yet, and there are some libraries missing. There are things that are just not completely polished, or we haven't figured out the best practices yet, just because everything is new. Um, but in terms of the core idea of Compose and um, most of its APIs, it seems to be the same direction that every other modern UI toolkit is taking. And it's a lot more convenient to use already than the old toolkit that we had. Is this just something, well, just, uh, is this something which builds on top of the existing one? So essentially it's like between you as a developer and the Android side of things and then not, well, quote unquote, not doing more than translating this into XML? Or is this something which uh, makes the old approach what, replaceable? Uh, it, it, builds, it builds on top of the existing toolkit because you like can't avoid the existing toolkit. But what it's mostly doing is that it's just using a canvas and then throwing the UI on top of that. So it's it's using the old toolkit to the like bare minimum that it has to in order to display something on Android, but you're basically just drawing everything on a canvas and 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 building it up from there. It's uh, it's similar to what Flutter is doing, or uh, to like what any game engine that's being run on Android is doing. Um, so there are, there are no native widgets uh, being displayed anymore, and there's just one canvas, and then things are being drawn in there. It's also unbundled from the OS, which is which is really important. So for the old UI toolkit, uh, if you wanted to get updates, you would again have to go to newer Android versions, uh, which which is an issue sometimes. And uh, Compose is a library that you can build into your application. So if a new version of Compose comes out, uh, you can upgrade the version inside your application. You can ship a new package to your to your users, and you know you get all the bug fixes and new features and and so on. So it has some downsides, of course, uh, like um, your application will be larger now. Uh, if every application is going to package Compose into their app, then uh, app sizes are going to grow by a bit, but you avoid the problem of having to wait for the entire OS to be updated on the device. So it, it, bec- it becomes an application layer toolkit. Thank you. So one question, I think I teased it to you before we spoke, uh, is uh, something every one of my guests have to go through. Uh, when they are on for the first time. And it is, so if you had the chance to give your younger self a piece of advice, so what would it be? Yeah, you did tease this one. Um, so I, I had the ability to <laughs> think about it a bit. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't have a lot of things that I would do differently uh, in terms of uh, like the technologies that I've uh, that I've picked. I'm, I'm still quite happy that I'm, I'm, uh, I'm in the Android world in general. Betting on Kotlin early was also uh, really, really good. <laughs> What I didn't get uh, too far with is uh, iOS. So it's it's worth having some perspective of the other like major platform 
Um, so maybe I should have looked at iOS a bit more. I have a very basic understanding of how iOS and iOS development works. Uh, I did learn a bunch of Swift ones, so I, I mostly speak the language, but of course I'm not using it. So if I had to sit down now and code in Swift, I, I wouldn't be very good at it. <laughs> so that, that, would be a, that would be a handful thing to uh, focus on more if I had the time. And also, uh, just in general, something that really, really worked for me uh, was learning things during university outside of the university. So I, I did a computer science degree or a computer engineering degree. So it was a lot of general engineering, a lot of math, a lot of uh, like non-practical things, uh, which, which is useful. Uh, there, there's a lot of perspective that you can get from it. But like you're never going to become a good Android developer from that. We we learned very little of like how to write good code, uh, or well, there's just not enough time to get into the depths of a platform. So something something that I really should suggest is that uh, you can learn a lot just from the internet uh, while you're still at university. So like that diving into a specific technology uh, on your own, in addition to what you're being taught, is is really valuable, and you can get a head start uh, with that. Especially nowadays, it's it's getting easier and easier to get your hands on all kinds of of material. So there there are paid, there are free ones. Uh, you get video, you get text, you get books, and it's essentially if you want to do. So what what is your your preferred way of of absorbing new new knowledge? So. I know that different people have different different ways of learning, which is absolutely fine. And so what, what, what is your preferred? So say it would be a nice link, for example, for, for the show notes. So what are the sources you use to to stay up to date with what's going on in, in Android, for example? A bit of everything, really. So um, there are some major newsletters that are that are very popular in the community. Um, so those are a great way of keeping up with uh, blog posts and articles and, and general news around Android. There are, well, online communities everywhere. Um, you can go to Reddit, you can go to Twitter, for example. A lot of Android developers are active on both of those. There are things like the Kotlin Lang Slack, which is primarily for Kotlin, but uh, for example, things like Compose, since it's a very Kotlin-focused project, uh, we'll also have an active community there, um, so that's worth joining. Yeah, I for for learning new things, I, I do a bit of everything. So I, I read written content. I used to watch a lot of conference talks uh, when I when I had free time during university. Again, again this free time thing. <laughs> yeah, so I I, I spent uh, yeah probably a couple of months uh, like watching uh, a talk or two every day about Android development. It, it's just good to to gain gain uh, gain perspective. <laughs> Absolutely fine. Um, I, I, I took I took some notes, so I will I will bug you until you 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 sent me the links. And Kotlin Lang is where we stay in touch, anyways. And um, I, I can just just recommend it to everyone who's interested in Kotlin and or Android development to get there because it's 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 a bunch of really nice folks. And um, so far, everything as every every discussion I was involved in or I saw on there was really welcoming. And it, I, I never had the situation on on Kotlin Slack that or Kotlin Link Slack that anyone was 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 kind of shut off or something. It, it's just really productive and really nice because everyone is is highly invested, quote unquote, uh, on on what they're doing. And then you have these really productive chats on there. Cool. Last thing. Where can people find you if they got hooked and they want to know more about what you do, who you are, and yeah, what's the best way? Yeah, um, for example, the Kotlin Lang Slack is not a, not a, not a bad way of reaching me. You can you can DM me there. Um, I I am there a lot uh, as we discussed. You can also find me on Twitter, which I also use a lot. My handle there is not easy to pronounce in English. I didn't think this through when picking a nickname many years ago. <laughs> it's fine. I put the link in but, the show notes. Uh, it will be there. <laughs> yeah. So my, my Twitter handle is ZSMB13. Uh, so that's four letters and two digits. And It's unique, at least. It is. Uh, <laughs> and you can also uh, find my website, which is very similar. It's zsmb.co. Um, so I have all of my blog posts and uh, my list of appearances and talks there. So uh, that's hopefully a valuable resource for anything Android and Kotlin. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, we were spot on, more or less. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And um, yeah, I wish you a great weekend.
Awesome. Uh, yeah. Thank, thank you for having me on your podcast. And uh, yeah, let's let's have a have a nice weekend. <laughs> and that's it. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you liked it, please leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. And if you have any comments or want to get in touch, please send us an email to contact at codingwithholger.fm. See you next time. Bye bye.